we're approaching people as if the, everybody's stage of truth is the same. And I'm not saying that the stage of truth is relative. Don't worry about it. Uh, it's it's no big deal. Whoever has their setup one way, you know, somebody could just have tradition on there and you don't have to worry about scripture and, you know, those things. But right. you can approach them to be able to find common ground and then begin to work through, well, this is the reason why I think the way I do. And here's here's the way here's here's the authority that I look to for this issue. And let the dialogue go in that direction. I think it's much more uh, effective that way. Hello and welcome to Stained Glass Theology, a podcast where we have friendly conversations about the issues that divide the church. My name is Jason Hart and I'm here with my good friend Rob Spangler and today we are very excited to be having a conversation with Michael Patton. Michael is the primary contributor to the Parchment and Pen Credo House blog. He's been in ministry for nearly 20 years as a pastor, author, speaker, and blogger. He has a Master of Theology from Dallas Theological Seminary. He's the president of Credo House Ministries and Credo Courses, and he's the author of the 2014 Crossway book, Now That I'm a Christian, as well as the author of Increase My Faith and the Theology Program. He's also the host of Theology Unplugged. He's married, has four children, and we are incredibly honored to be having a conversation with him today. Michael, welcome to Stained Glass Theology. Hey, thanks, guys. I'm so glad to be here. Awesome. One thing that um, we picked up from your biography is that you've been teaching theology for, I think, over 20 years to lay people. Um, and that's a long time. I'd love to hear more about your theological journey. What drew you to teaching theology? Uh, what what about that emphasis to lay people? And, you know, there's, there's often a misconception of, isn't theology just kind of ac- academic stuff? You know, what, I guess, what led you to this point? You can take as much time as you need, five, 10 minutes, whatever you think would be helpful to just kind of sketch out your theological journey. What what brought you to where you are today? Yeah, it, it was one man, Chet Lackey. That's who it is. Neither, neither of you probably know him. He died very shortly after I started this journey, but he inspired me. I, you know, it, it was God used him in such a significant way in my life. And it was such a tragic, quick death. He de- died probably about my age, whenever he was about 50, uh, in the hospital, just of something really odd that uh, uh, he choked on a spit and died in, in, during mm-hmm. the night, and that was just a terrible thing for me. But he had he had influenced me so much. He was um, I'd grown up in the church. I'd grown up Baptist, and I'm not saying anything wrong with the church I grew up in. Everything had to do with me and the timing of my life. But uh, I I felt like I knew a lot, you know. But in Sunday school, my entire life went to vacation Bible school. I mean, everything that my mother made me do. And I, and I caught on to some stuff. My mom was, uh, my, uh, I, I was, uh, in tutelage to my mom and she was very good at reading me the Bible. And I thought, you know, I, I know quite a bit, but then whenever I came in contact with this guy named Chet, he just taught at a whole different level. And it's not that it's not that he taught at an academic level for something that you, it would just, would just leave you kind of scratching your head trying to figure out what in the world is going on. But he talked talked about really deep stuff that that I had learned a little bit about, but in a very deep theological way and apologetics, defending the faith and using mm-hmm. the, the terminology that I'd never heard, but explaining the terminology. 
I mean, it just, my heart just lit on fire as I listened to him. I thought he was the smartest guy that ever existed. I, at this time, I didn't even know there was such a thing as a seminary or I didn't know how people got this instruction, but here's this guy named Chet Lackey and I've never seen anything like him. And he was, not only was he incredibly smart, but he was also incredibly gracious. And I didn't understand the guy because I, this was at a time period in my life whenever I wasn't really living right. And I was in a transition to try, at least trying to live right. And so I'd be out with my buddies all every Friday, Saturday, no, much more than that, just, just about every night. And uh, I would take a break and go to Chet Lackey, go to church there. And I knew he knew where I'd been. I do. Because his daughter, I would see his daughter sometimes at the places that I would go <laughs> at night. And I know that she found out. But he didn't care. He just uh, open arms every time. Come here, Michael. Give me a hug. Gave him yeah. a hug. And he just taught. And I mean, it just transformed me from the inside out. There was no, there was no legalism or anything. It was just grace and the truth that came with it just blew me away. And right then there, I remember having just before he died, meeting him for lunch, which he paid for. And he gave me a couple of books that were mm -hmm. very marked up. So I know he loved the books, but I said, Jet, I want to go and be do what you do someday. Mm -hmm. And uh, he encouraged me to go to Dallas Theological Seminary. That's the reason why I went there, or one of the main reasons why I went there. Uh, the other main reason was I didn't even know there was such a thing as another seminary at the time. So, so it was kind of my only choice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I love what you said too. It was like something really stirred in your heart when he taught theology. What do you think that is? What do you think was made the difference? You know, between kind of just hearing things and knowing all the stories, and and just something, just hearing something different. I guess something that struck you differently, anyway. Well, I'm sure that we we could look at it from a from a divine perspective and say the Holy Spirit was making a move in my life. Yeah. And whenever he makes that move, God is found to be so alluring, so beautiful that you're just, you're just overwhelmed with him and you can't get enough. And, uh, you know, we've all been there at that point where it's just, I, you just can't get enough of God. And, uh, I think that was it from a, from a divine perspective, but it doesn't mean the human element was left out. And I do think it was knowledge. I do think it was using my mind. I do think it was for the first time saying, this isn't a blind leap of faith that I'm taking. Mm -hmm. This is, this is worked out. I'm not in a, a Christian heritage. That is me and my mother and my local church. I'm in a Christian heritage that has lasted for 2000 years of great, mm -hmm. great heroes of the faith. And that is, I, I think that is, from a human perspective, that is alluring. Now, of course, uh, you know, Corinthians says we do not accept the things of God without the Holy Spirit, but it doesn't mean that those things of God are inconsequential to our movements or to what the Holy Spirit uses. As St. Thomas Aquinas said one time, God not only chooses the end, but he chooses the means. So the means was this guy named Chet Lackey and the theology that he taught. And being, it wasn't so much that he was just uncompromising, but the grace that he brought to it. Yeah. And, and you brought up the historic church as well. And, there, and, and a lot of times we can, I think we can miss that. We, sometimes it feels like we were just born in this vacuum <laughs> and we're just like the first ones ever experiencing this. And there's something eye-opening about that. So today we wanted to talk about some of the tools that, you know, you've helped to develop, at least in our thinking of how to deal with issues that divide the church. One of those that we learned from you was the stage of truth. And the stage of truth it is something that we'd love to kind of have you at least walk through. I, I remember being able to think through these kinds of categories can really help genuinely build more charity towards one another, but also also gain better understanding of what people believe and, and why. So I wonder if 
do you think you could just kind of give us a, a big picture of, of what the stage of truth is and how, how that might work out? Yeah, sure. Um, the, you can think of the stage of truth, and it doesn't have to be a Christian thing here. I mean, everybody has their stage yeah. of truth. And it, is, and it is a way of coming to knowledge, a way of uh, becoming convicted about something. The stage of truth is how, what are your sources of authority? And just about every theology textbook that you get will have uh, a section on authority and the sources for authority and the sources for authority for a Christian. And whenever you say, what's, what's the Christian source of authority? Most of the time, what we would say is, well, the Christian source of authority is the Bible. And, and that's it. If, if you know you're, you're brought up in an evangelical or a conservative uh, environment, the Bible is it. And so, you know, if it's not in the Bible, don't, don't talk to me about it. Uh, you got to find it only in the Bible, kind of this idea that that, that is, has, it does have integrity. I don't mean to uh, say anything, but you guys know where I'm going with this. Uh, the Bible is an incredibly important source for Christian theology. As a matter of fact, the most important source, but it is not the only source. Whenever we come to think about God and ask the questions, the big questions of life, you know, why am I here? What is, what is the future? What does God have? What is God's instruction for me? What are the what are the key things uh, that I should, uh, morals that I should try to follow? There are a lot of things that we go to. We go to the Bible, but we also go to our tradition. We can't deny that. I mean, everybody goes to mom and dad and what they taught them, and we all have convictions uh, that are emotional convictions because of what we were taught whenever we were young. We always want that which we already know to be correct because we're most comfortable with it. And so, tradition, the history, the what our church has taught us, that is a, an authority on the stage of truth. So the Bible, tradition, reason, reason is uh, how we process it in our mind, how we, you know, uh, are, are able to construct it in such a way that it, it doesn't contradict itself. We, do, we can't have knowledge that contradicts itself. Well, wh why do you say that? Because reason tells us that. Reason is a source of authority. Matter of fact, it's a very strong source of authority. And then you've also got the experience. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people say, no, no, experience is not a source of authority. I'd say, try to live without it. I mean, of course it is. Your experience, yeah. how you experience things is absolutely a source of authority. And emotions. Those are the five that I kind of have boiled. I think back then, maybe I, I separated and put general revelation, which is not a bad thing to do, but it's just, it can probably fit into reason as well although you know i mean now that i think about it every time i think about it i'm like no i gotta keep it separate but uh <laughs> those are the five sources of authority our emotions are a source of authority as well how we feel about things and um uh, you know we talk about the conviction that we have with our emotions and uh, uh we take all of those five elements and you kind of put them if you if you can envision in your mind a stage and the, the further to the front of that stage it is, the more authority it has in your life. And then the further to the back of the stage it is, the less authority it has in your life. This is a paradigm of thinking. This is how you come to know things. You might look at, uh, say, an atheist. And an atheist, how, what's your uh, stage mm -hmm. of truth construct like? If I were to ask him, they'd say, well, just science, just reason. I'd say, well, no, it's not. You've got other things. You've also got tradition. You've also got emotions. You've also got experience. I mean, science can't be done without experience. What is science without experience? Mm -hmm. There's no such thing. 
And so you've got all these things as well. You just don't know it yet. You may not have the Bible like I do, but you do have all of these things. The question is, how do you put that together? What source has the most authority in what area? Some areas, the Bible will have not less authority, but just less to say about something. When we talk about uh, things that reason pick up, like the, the very existence of God. The Bible doesn't speak too much to the existence of God. It automatically assumes it. But in Romans chapter 1, it does tell us that since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes have been clearly seen, yeah. being understood through what has been made. So therefore, you've got this source of reason constructing what you see and putting it together, saying, hey, if everything is here, if, if everything is real, if I'm real, kind of the Rene Descartes Cartesian method, I think, therefore I am. If everything is real, if I'm really here, I didn't create myself. So there, there's a source for that. And you go all the way back to the beginning, say there's got to be a source for the beginning. And that's just reason mm-hmm. taking revelation, general revelation, and yeah. saying, um, uh, this is uh, how we're to construct this, and this is how we get our knowledge. Some things are just based purely upon experience. We don't have anything else but experience to, to know things. And we have to rely upon experience to know them. But uh, generally, if you have your stage of truth, a lot of times there, you, you may have your setup a little bit differently than mine, and th- that's okay as long as, as long as we understand what source is the ultimate whenever it does speak upon an issue. And I'd say the Bible is the ultimate source. Yeah, I used, I used to, th- this is a side thing, I, I don't know if you guys want to go somewhere else, but I used to think that it is the only infallible source. I've really thought through that for a long time. I'm probably going to get in trouble probably by you guys and everybody else, but just hear me out. I don't think it's the only infallible source. I do think that creation itself mm-hmm. is infallible whenever it speaks to us because the Bible says it is the word of God. Um, I do think reason yeah. itself is infallible whenever it's done rightly. Now, you mm-hmm. say, well, of course, whenever it's done rightly, these things, well, I do think experience is infallible whenever it's interpreted rightly. Now, here's the thing. They all have to be interpreted. And the right, Bible is the right. clearest, and that is direct revelation from God, but it doesn't mean it doesn't have to be interpreted. So I think they all, ha- you know, we, we have to come with this mindset that we, we pull in all the data, but we can construct that data and be wrong about it. And that's why we have to think so deeply about how our stage is set up, mm-hmm. which one comes first and what matter. Yeah, yeah. It reminds me of a point that uh, the late R.C. Sproul made when he, he asked a class, is, is general revelation infallible? Yeah. And everybody wanted to say I, no, because it's a good reform that. class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but he got, a, you know, he got, a, well, wait a minute, you know, just because our interpretations of general revelation may be flawed, the revelation itself stands, you know, it's what God yeah. made it, you know, it yeah. still speaks that truth. And just like we can go, we're the fallible ones when we, <laughs> when we pick up the scriptures, mm-hmm. when we when we look at the solar system, you know, we're, we're the ones that can draw, you know, the wrong conclusions, but that's not a fault, you know, on the, on the revelation itself. And all we're saying at this point is, is all truth infallible? And we say, yeah, then is all truth right. God's truth? Yes. Can you find God's truth in just about everything? We'd say yes, but it's harder to see sometimes. And it's more misrepresented and misinterpreted in certain sources, such as, you know, we got to be careful with our experience and with our emotions, but they've got to stay on this stage because they're so vitally important. They'll always stay there no matter what, but they're so vitally important to creating a three-dimensional world we live in and a, and a, and a colorful world and just, just loving the, our, our life. I mean, how terrible would it be if we just divest ourselves of 
any um, uh, love and and pursuit of experience and emotions because mm-hmm. they they do drive us. And I've learned that a lot ever since. I mean, you know, since I've written these classes, I've learned it in so many different ways. Having gone through depression and doubt, just a lot of real hard stuff, I can see the the power that they have and having to work through them and understand that they have to be tamed and they have to be used. Yeah. It, it, it seems like if you started removing some of those things from the stage of truth, it would be a denial of God's good gifts to us. And I think he's the ultimate source of, of those things. And so to remove them or not view them as, as infallible um, is, is ultimately because their, their authority comes from their source of where they came from. So creation as a source of authority is authoritative because it came from God. So once we start taking them off, we're starting to handicap ourselves in not fully taking advantage of everything, all the gifts that God's given us in terms of revelation. Well, isn't it funny? I mean, think of, think of emotion and, and think of, okay, you, you, you move into an academic world, such as the one that I, I have gone through whenever I went to seminary and a lot of things when we're talking about theology and you guys, I'm sure are well familiar with this, but you move into this and emotions uh, is something that uh, it, it's kind of like a ridicule. You're just using your emotions. And it's true. Sometimes that you, you're wrong because they, you're just, you're just using your experience. So much has, has emotions itself been thought of as, as something that we don't want to use. We don't want to have. Uh, there was an early Christian doctrine that was called the impassibility of God, meaning God did not ex- does not experience emotions, and uh, he is not an emotional being because uh, he can't. His emotions are dynamic. Whenever I, I just uh, there's nothing in the Bible that would evidence that. But how in the world can we have something like that that is within our character that God does not also share? And uh, every evidence in the Bible shows that God has emotions. The way he celebrates over people, the way he the way he gets a- yeah. angry at people. I mean, he is in a full, full of emotion. He uses those perfectly, but that is something we're also to put on our stage, tame and use and celebrate. Yeah, that's so helpful. I think too, one thing this does is when we think through other traditions, sometimes I think we can paint them with a really broad br- brush. So, you know, we might, uh, from a Protestant side, might say that Oh, Catholics, they only care about tradition. They're not, they're not looking at scripture at all. Or from, you know, from the other side, it could be, well, Protestants don't care about tradition. It's, it's, it's only about scripture. And I think what this does is gives us nuance so that we don't paint too broad of a, of a brush with people. And we can really see that these things are at play. So I guess to, to sketch it out, I guess for people listening and trying to think this through, I mean, it's really, like you said, it's a stage and it's almost like these are different, I guess, like actors on the stage that are, you know, the closer you are to it, I guess, the more authority it holds, you know, that, that piece of authority. And so, so we can really see that on the, on the Roman Catholic side. I think you put on the stage, scripture and tradition are really hand in hand, you know, more than it's not one, it's not one thing, another, you can't have this and you can't have that, but it really helps to see that there are just multiple authorities at play in, e- in each of our thinking. And, and we shouldn't be so, we should be more careful not to just throw out these broad statements about, you know, people just only focusing on one thing, you know, charismatics probably get, you know, accused of only having emotion, you know, that that's all you, you know, care about and things. And that's, that's I don't think that's true. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, whenever you talk about uh, each one of those, you can set up the state of truth. And that's one of the fun things about yeah. this. Once you have the state of truth, 
trying to figure it out how each tradition is set up. And you're right. When we're talking about the Roman Catholics, they would have tradition at the very front and you'd have uh, tradition being made up of written and unwritten tradition. And so there'd be, there'd be the same thing as us, but they're seeing it, they're seeing it differently. And, you know, if, if now you know how to, you, you will know how, once you know their state of truth, you're going to know how to approach people. Cause we assume that people just think, and they, they're all set up the way we are, but right, they're right. not. And, and yeah. sometimes you've got to help people reshape their stage of truth. And sometimes you've got to leave their stage of truth alone and approach them uh, with respect to their stage of truth whenever you're trying mm. to convince them. I mean, think of just the difference between a man and a woman and how it is that, mm. we, I mean, I, as a husband, uh, you know, for the first 10, 15 years, he still do it sometimes. Uh, well, I still do it often if I'm if I'm truthful. But what what you do is you try to do to your spouse and mm-hmm. be kind to your spouse in the way in which you want them to be kind to you, and it usually doesn't work out. And and you know, like kind of five love languages, um, uh, we we may have one way that we feel love, and then we try to show that to the to our spouse, and they're like, they're, they're not responding. I don't understand it. I would respond very well at this point. And I think it's the same way whenever we're talking about the stage of truth. We're approaching people as if the, everybody's stage of truth is the same. And I'm not saying that the stage of truth is relative. Don't worry about it. Uh, it's it's no big deal. Whoever has their set up one way, you know, somebody could just have tradition on there and you don't have to worry about scripture and, you know, those things. But right. you can approach them to be able to find common ground and then begin to work through well, this is the reason why I think the way I do. And here's here's the way here's here's the authority that I look to for this issue. And let the dialogue go in that direction. I think it's much more uh effective that way. So wh- what would you say to someone who said something to the effect of, well, I follow Christ, so I don't need a stage of truth, or mm-hmm. you know, I just listen to the Holy Spirit. So I'd <laughs> because I think and I'll let you speak to that, but I think in one sense, it, it's a good thing for someone to follow Christ, but maybe there's something that's a little misguided about that, or or would you affirm that, or how would you maybe approach that? No, I mean, it's you would have to approach it. I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm doing that right now with, uh, with uh, someone that is possibly going to be very close to our family sometime, and I'm, uh, I'm trying to uh, encourage them to get a little bit deeper into where they're at with stuff, because, you know, whenever you say, I follow Christ and that's all that matters, um, you, you want to ask a lot of questions about that, you know, and, uh, you know, well, who is Christ to you? You know, who do you say that he is? I think the most important question ever asked on the face of the earth is, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Christ is? Well, why do you say that he's that way? You know, uh, what makes you think that? And then, you know, if they if they begin to take a kind of a naive maybe uh approach to it and say well it, it doesn't matter you know th- this is just what i've always believed you know you say you understand in the back of your mind well their tradition has always brought them up this way but you're going to have to challenge it at least subtly in some way don't that you disagree with them say oh yeah i believe in christ too and i trust them too what do you do with this you know what do you do whenever people have different christ you know because i was in india on a mission trip and and i was talking to uh some people there and they said they also believed in Christ, but they believed in a lot of other gods as well. What do you do with that? Usually you'll mm-hmm. begin to see people react and sh- show their hand that they actually have more on their stage of truth than just that. 
they may say, no, that can't be. Well, why can't you have more than, you know, one God? And they say, well, because you, you just can't. I mean, who would have created everything? And, you know, they, now they're appealing to reason. Well, um, mm. because I've always been taught that, okay, they're appealing mm. to tradition. But they may appeal to scripture. You know, in the beginning, God created all things. Okay, they're appealing to. So, so you'll start to reveal this to them and show them that, that kind of in the in a presuppositional way, in a sense, that this isn't really the way you think. Let's let's work this out together. So it is important. I mean, I think this is the reason why it's in the first class. This is the reason why it's, you know, we take up two sessions going through this in the theology program and in introduction to theology. It is it is something that is done all the time. Everybody has a stage of truth. Everybody already has it. Is your stage constructed well? Do you have the right things on the stage of truth? Are you trying to act as if you've got rid of some of these things? I think the only thing a person that is not a Christian uh, can get rid of is the Bible on the stage of truth. I'm not a presuppositionalist in the, in the sense that I believe that the Bible is automatically assumed and everything, the Bible itself but I do believe God's truth is automatically assumed. So you can't get a reason, you can't get rid of truth. You can't get rid of experience. You can't get rid of emotion and general revelation. And, and, and emotion probably is one that comes, comes up a lot too, is, is, you know, as, as a untrustworthy thing, I went to Bethlehem college and seminary, which is John Piper's school. So our, slo- our slogan was serious joy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, but so even that it's, it's on our stage of truth, but it's going to be in different places for, for people. But so what, I guess, what are some guiding principles to construct this stage of truth? Is that something that it, it obviously comes automatic, but then it also needs iteration and refinement, you know, and how, how do we get that right? I guess, how do, how do we make sure we're, we're doing the work? Cause there, there really is a stage of truth that is ideal. There's an opt, there's, there's one that's set up, <laughs> you know, we're, we're all trying to arrange our pieces for it, but you know, how, how do we get there? I guess. Yeah, whenever it comes to the Christian faith, you know, as long as we can we can agree the Bible is on the stage of truth and it is God's word. I mean, if we can't go there, we're if we don't have that yet, then I think we're really gonna have to work that out somehow, some way, like I said, indirectly or directly. We've got to get the scriptures up there and we've got to get them authoritative. Once they are authoritative, I do believe even the Bible itself works this stage out, at least with with um, the Bible and tradition and reason. I think those three are set up and they're kind of front and center. And you have the Bible at the very front because it is our ultimate source. It is our go-to source for the Christian faith. may not be our go-to source for mathematics. It may not be our go-to source for how to repair a car, those kind of things. But it is our go-to source for the Christian faith. It is the, the primary source, the ultimate source. And then reason and uh, and uh, tradition have to be there. The more dynamic ones are going to be the emotion and experience. And let me let me illustrate that and help help uh, try to help uh, me make my point. Is there are people that are much more. I've come to realize this through the years. Um, not everybody's like me, as I said before. Mm-hmm. Not everybody's like you. There are people who are much much more emotionally acute than I am. I, I, I'm not really acute and attuned and, you know, this is, this is something people, you know, sometimes may try to fault you on if you're this way. Um, and maybe it is a fault. I would love to be more acutely attuned to my emotions with respect to, to, uh, my feeling of God's presence. Mm. Um, I've never really had any type of special feeling of God's presence. Um, I, I, you know, it's kind of like, I've just always known he's been here. 
you know, and the further convicted I get, the more my knowledge increases. That is the way I construct things. And I just get excited. My emotions come out of this, come out of the way in which I process these things. But it's not they're independent and they're contributing at that point to a realization that he exists. Now, I'm not criticizing anybody who who comes to me and says, I just really feel the presence of God, or right now I feel the presence of, or, or just whatever they feel, because I've come to respect very deeply, um, uh, you know, sometimes what they call women's intuition, and sometimes just Christians' intuition on these things. Yeah. And not only respect it, but almost, uh, not almost, absolutely uh, um, wish I could have it as well. Wish I could feel that what you're feeling. God hasn't made me in such a way, at least right now. And sometimes, sometimes maybe that'll change. Um, and so you have people out there that have much more emotional acuteness. And then you also have people out there that are, uh, have experiences. They experience God and realize it in such a different way. Like my wife, and she'll say this to me, all the time, and I say bragger. You know, every time she says it, <laughs> she, uh, she uh, God seems to answer all her prayers and everything she really, really prays for. He he eventually brings about in some way, and it, it's been very nice because it has built her faith in a whole different mm -hmm. way, and it's built my faith from afar. But I just always tell her, I just can't do that. You know, he doesn't listen to me. So I'll bring something to her and I'll say, Hey, listen, will you pray for this? Because he ain't listening to me on this. He'll listen to you for sure. <laughs> Uh, but I, I do think that that is true. I do think that there are people out there that that are more effective in their their prayer life with regard to having things that they pray for come about. And there's not any reason for us to get upset about it, but to celebrate it because they're part of our community. Right. We know right. them. They can celebrate you because you use your mind and, and tradition mm -hmm. in a different way, and you, that's how you approach God. And it's only as the body of believers comes together that now we're experiencing the fullness or some degree the fullness of what God has to offer to us in his uh in knowledge of him and we see yeah. it through other people. Yeah, we don't we don't want to be the mind telling the heart we have no need of you. You know. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. And now we talked about what what about tradition though? Because that one maybe gets a little bit of a harder view. I would say, if I'm honest, from the Protestant side, I, I would say tradition is sometimes view, not viewed at all, or, or it's kind of like, well, we've gotten, you know, we have the scriptures, we have all we need. So what, where does, how would you think about tradition? Isn't, you know, you're, you're so right. And it's so unfortunate that we, we are that way. I think uh, maybe there's, there are obviously some Protestant denominations that do it better, but normally in the, the way that I got brought up, the Baptist, the Bible church type thing, we don't have any tradition that goes beyond our local church, you know, mm, and yeah. that's all we need to know. Maybe, maybe I've heard, heard about, you know, Charles Spurgeon, maybe, maybe C.S. Lewis, because he's recently, he's, you know, uh, quoted so often, but beyond that, I have no clue who my family heritage is. Now, yeah. uh, you know, speaking of my own family heritage, my actual family heritage, I don't really know that much about them too, uh, but I have tried to study them. I've tried to figure it out. And mm. I wasn't, I didn't know my grandma, uh, my granddad died whenever he was really young. As a matter of fact, a few days ago, I was just, you know, back to constructing my family tree, trying to. And I'm so curious about it. I want to know where I came from. Best I could get, though, was on my dad's side. Uh, there is my great, 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 yeah, great, great, great granddad who in the 19th century, or maybe his great, 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 he was uh, playing poker at a saloon and um, uh, a guy accused him of cheating. 
they go outside and have an actual duel and he kills the guy. Wow. And after wow. he killed him, he felt so guilty that he became a Baptist itinerant preacher. So there's wow. my heritage. Wow. <laughs> But um, yeah, I mean, you you have the heritage that we look to, but just how exciting is it that you, we really can see our spiritual heritage mm-hmm. and that we can lean upon them? I mean, here we are today, and we're talking about, you know, here's somebody with a, an emotional acuteness and somebody with an experiential awareness and, uh, uh, you know, activity and somebody that uses their their intellect and somebody that uses, here, here here's, what, what, what if you don't have your tradition? Nobody looks towards tradition. It is so incredibly disheartening because there's so many more so much more to the body of Christ that still contributes to the church so long as you let it these people are dead yes uh saint augustine is dead yes john calvin is dead yes uh charles spurgeon is dead yes but they're still contributing members as long as you allow it and you really can't i mean uh, it's, it's such a humbling thing to study church history because you, you you come to a conclusion with that. Let's say we don't study church history at all, and you come to a conclusion and you you formulate your theology. Here's what I believe about this and this and this, and you're very convicted. But what if you go before you and start going down the line, and there's nobody who holds the same views as you, uh, say, about, uh, about uh, the resurrection or say about uh, the nature of God or say about his impassibility, th- those kind of things. You're the only one. Um, mm. Now, beforehand, before I really gained appreciation for tradition, I used to think, man, that'd be really cool. I'm the only one. Right, right. (laughs) But it wouldn't, would it? I mean, that would be a really scary thing because I would think immediately, why in the world would the Holy Spirit so long, 2,000 years later, just give this information to me? And why in the world would I require other people to believe it, teach it with conviction, and teach it so much so sometimes I'm saying, this is an essential for you to be saved, this new belief mm. that I came to. And unfortunately, if you see where I'm going here, this yeah. is what has happened many times within the history of the church with cults who uh, deny the Trinity. The, uh, if you look out across there of every single cult, they usually will have started within the last two or 300 years, mm. and they have something completely different than the rest of church history. And what they do is say, well, all those people that went before us, they were right. all wrong. And finally, we got it right. And I say, okay, it's not that that can't be correct, because it can be. Maybe God did do that. Maybe maybe the Holy Spirit was lost for, for 1,800 years, and suddenly Joseph Smith was the first person who accepted the Holy Spirit. But I say, you're going to have to show me how, that, how that's true, how you know that's true, uh, why it is that you believe that, because at first glance, I, I don't see any reason to believe that. And the scripture says that, you know, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The scripture says that those people, uh, my sheep will know me. They will hear my voice and they will know me. They will know my voice. And here we have 2000 years of the voice of Christ and the mm. people of God expressing what they hear and them all saying the same thing, that Jesus Christ is a God man, that, that uh, he died on the cross, rose from the dead, that you know, all these essentials. And here you are coming along 2000 years later saying something completely different. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know church history that you are, you are set up. If you don't have tradition on the stage of truth, if you don't respect it, you're set up to become a cult member. And a lot of them resurface, don't they? Gnosticism comes back in different forms throughout history. And yeah, yeah. To see, to see that and how the church dealt with it really has a lesson for us really to get that broader vantage point 
it's it's humbling. It's humbling. We're 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 not the greatest and the best all the time, right? <laughs> like we're yeah. we grew yeah. up being told that, but it's not always true. You know, yeah. we we have we have great people that we stand on the shoulder. We have a great heritage that we've inherited. We do we weren't born in a in this vacuum, but yeah. we really do stand, you know, we stand here by grace of, of what God has done in the past. He is sovereign yeah. over over time. It's not mm-hmm. he wasn't sovereign while the Bible was written and then and then got off his throne. He's 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 still he's still on his throne. And you know, we were talking earlier. You guys had asked me because I'm writing a, a class and um, uh, done a lot of studies in what what are the essentials for the faith and what are the non-essentials. Yeah. What are the things that you absolutely have to believe in order to be a Christian? What are the things you have to believe to be saved? And what are the things that you can differ on? You really can't have this study outside of church history. Mm. I mean, you can look at the Bible and you could read through the Bible and you could say. This is what I think are the essentials, and here's the non-essentials, because I just use the Bible alone. But what whenever, what about whenever you go through all of church history, all the men of God, and they differ on certain things, and they they all confess the same Christ, Jesus Christ, who Christ is, what he did for you, which I think is the the primary essential, who is uh, who the person and work of Christ, who he is and what he did. They all confess those same things, but they all differ, say, about the end times. I used to think you had to have the end times right in order to be saved mm-hmm. uh, because I used to think you had to have a belief just exactly like me in order to be saved. You're really off kilter. But through study of church history to see that there are so many good people who loved the same Jesus I do, who differed on so many different things, you are going to have to let loose of some of those things uh, or don't study church history because you won't know what to do except for to become Joseph Smith. You say, mm-hmm. well, I, I must have just inherited it for the first time well th- this is a this is a perfect segue into kind of where we were were, were heading and we i know we kind of talked about that uh, before we started recording as well but you have done some work on this particular and in an article that you uh, put together you kind of have these um growing circles if you will and these these different categories of kind of how you would maybe tease out different beliefs and kind of how maybe we would prioritize them. So kind of moving, moving away a little bit from that, that stage of truth of kind of foundational, how do we know what we know, what are our sources of authority? Another thing that kind of divides Christians is maybe uh, what they would put in these particular circles of importance, how they would maybe prioritize things. So this is something I think that we've got a lot of questions about, but maybe before we get into it, if you could just kind of give a sketch out of that way that you categorize and organize just the different beliefs that we have as Christians and how to prioritize them. Um, concentric circle of importance. That's what I, that's what I call it is the concentric circle of importance. And it's just a hierarchy of belief. It's just, it's just basically saying this, um, there are things of first importance. You know where I get that from? I get that from Paul in the scripture, 1 Corinthians mm-hmm. chapter 15, whenever he says to the Corinthians, whenever I came to you, I gave to you that which is of first importance. Mm-hmm. And thankfully, Paul right afterwards says what he gave to them, that Christ died for our sins of the according to the scripture, that he rose. Um, so you've got the, the person and work of Christ right there. You've got the assumption of the uh, existence of God. So you believe that God exists. You believe that Christ came and he died for our sins. Therefore, we're sinners and that he rose from the grave. Those things, those things I would put dead center in the center of the most important beliefs, the things I would die for. I won't die for all my beliefs, but those things I will die for. 
And hopefully we know what to die for. Hopefully we as Christians have thought through this well enough that we're, we're dying on the right hills, that we are mm. separating from people for the right reasons, that we're not you know, separating, a, starting a new church because of the color of the carpet or mm. the, the music that you listen to, other than saying, you know, maybe it's your preference. I'm not saying you can't go to a different church because you really love worship. But whenever you say, this is just wrong, you can't play that kind of music that's unchristian. Well, show me how, you know, and looking through tradition and looking through the day and looking through the Bible. How do you put this in the center of your circle saying mm -hmm. you have to listen to this kind of music in order to be Christian? Again, it's kind of like the state of truth. We already have these concentric circles. We just have to think through, well, how we put it together. Your, your first circle is essential for salvation. And then your next circle, at least on the article I was looking at, now this may be essential for orthodoxy. Yes. Yes. Essential Christian for historic Christian orthodoxy. Yeah. Okay. Let's, let's go through that one. That that's really good. Uh, so we have what's essential for salvation. And then the next circle right out is very important. Uh, it may not be essential for salvation, but it is essential for orthodoxy. And in other words, maybe we could put it this way. This is this is what Christians believe. This is what you have to believe in order to call yourself a Christian or to be Christian. I'm not saying, and I'm kind of separating at this point. You, we don't always have to do this, but separating, you know, just the base that you're saved, that you've been redeemed, and then now you're you're calling yourself Christian. Why do you call yourself Christian? Because here's the essential uh, for orthodoxy that I hold to, and maybe it's the inspiration of the Bible. You don't have to hold to the inspiration of the Bible in order to be saved, but it is part of historic Christian orthodoxy that we believe the Bible is inspired. Um, that you, and I'd probably put in that the 66 books of the Protestant Bible, because at least all three traditions have always agreed mm -hmm. that those books belong in there. Now, there's debate about other books, but right. those, uh, the, the Bible has a definition, at least there, um, that the doctrine of the Trinity that uh, there is one God, yet three persons. I'm not saying you have to be able to de define it in a perfect way, but um, I do believe it's an essential part of Christian orthodoxy to believe in the Trinity, to believe that Christ was fully God and fully man. And so a lot of things that we can put, that Christ is coming again, um, that, that God created the world out of nothing, those things are something that Christians have always everywhere believe. There's a guy named St. Vincent of Larens that lived in the fourth century that had a great statement that said, basically, here's what Christians believe, that which has been believed always, everywhere, and by all. Mm. It's not something for a particular community in Antioch. It's not something for a particular time in, mm. uh, you know, 19 uh, or in uh, 1209. It is something that always you, you find it part of the historic Christian church always, everywhere, and by all. So that's historic Christian orthodoxy. The next one is traditional orthodoxy. What is essential for tradition? And in this, I'm taking the three traditions, uh, Roman Catholics, Protestants, and Eastern Orthodox. Those are the three major Orthodox Christian traditions. Those are the three traditions that believe in those first two circles, just like you and I. So now you get to the next circle and you say, what is it? What is the essential to uh, be a Catholic? Well, you have to believe in the authority of the Pope. You have to believe in the, um, uh, the Marian dogmas, uh, that Mary was always a virgin and, and she assumed into heaven, those kind of things. You have mm -hmm. to believe that you have to have the seven sacraments. Those are essential for Catholicism. 
you don't have those, you don't have Catholicism. Uh, what is essential for Protestantism? Well, now we put, uh, you know, the, the Bible is our final source, our ultimate source, and that there is no Pope, uh, that salvation is by faith alone. All the other ones before that believe that salvation is by faith, but now we, we define it a little mm. bit more. Salvation is by faith alone. The mm. further you get out, the kind of longer your doctrinal statement gets. Right in the middle, it's just a little short one. And then yeah, you know, yeah. it goes further and further. And then after that, you have what is essential for denominational orthodoxy. So this goes into Protestants and says, let's let's talk about what's essential to make a Baptist. Well, you, you've got to have believer's baptism. You've got to have immersion. You've got to have um, uh, the independence of the local church. What is essential for uh, being a, a Presbyterian? Well, you have... You, well, I guess you don't have to be a Calvinist, but uh, used to be, you know, that was part of the distinctives. These are the distinctives of the denominations. Mm -hmm. These are the mm -hmm. distinct. Mm -hmm. What makes a denomination the way it is? What mm -hmm. What is different about it? Mm -hmm. uh, so now notice that's one that's one outside of tradition, two outside of historic or uh, uh, yeah, historic Christian orthodoxy and three outside of salvation. The funny thing is, is that a lot of times. Baptists will think if you do not agree that uh, you have to be immersed in order to be saved, then you're not saved. Yeah. And yeah. notice how they've taken that that one, two, three, that third circle, and put it in the center. And that's that's right. what we tend to do. We tend to put everything in the center. And this mm -hmm. is what it's this this concentric circle is designed designed to do is to help you distinguish, be more gracious towards people, and be more understanding, but also know exactly where what hills were to die on what yeah. ropes to hold on to loosely and what ropes to tighten our grips on so then you have that and then one outside that is important but not essential this may be something about uh you know your view of the end times or or your view of the beginning you know did god create yeah. the earth in seven days or did he use uh um or many uh millions of years did he use evolution did he not use evolution uh those i know a lot of people would never put that that far out like I do. And you're going to have to think through this yourself. I'm not saying I've got mine constructed exactly, but I am trying to think through this. And this is what yeah. you'll have to do is think through why it is you put what where. And I do put, you know, that that one there where, say, uh, there a lot of people that I know and I'm close to would, would not be able to believe that I could say, you could say God used evolution to create the world. I don't believe he did, but I'm certainly... Uh, you know, I don't know. It's one of those things that's. I think it's important, and let's work through it. Let's think it. Let's study it hard. Yeah, yeah. But don't put it as an essential. Not even as essential as your denominational stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then yeah. one out there is important, uh, not important at all. And then pure speculation. You know, like did Adam and Eve have a belly button? Those kind of things. I always come up with good illustrations while I'm reading or I'm going through the Bible. I think, oh man, I've got to put that in the the pure speculation because all I ever use is that did I happen to have a belly button and I got to come up with something yeah. different. <laughs> Maybe it has something to do with the dinosaurs, you know, did the dinosaurs breathe fire? I don't know. Yeah. That, that, that is, that is extremely helpful. Like just, I don't know, but like just to hear it again, Rob, like I'm, I'm yeah. I think you feel the same way. Like I'm just reminded of why I enjoyed that theology program so much. Um, because I think, even listening to you talk through that, it it's almost like it kind of takes some of the fear out where it's like, oh, I I I don't want to yeah. get this particular issue wrong. Like I think that's something I've definitely struggled with of, 
you know, I'll come across a particular topic and I'll like chase it for days because I'm like paranoid. I'm going to get it wrong. And then it's like, well, <laughs> how important really uh, is this in, in the grand scheme of things? Um, yeah. So thanks for, for walking through that one more time. Yeah, you bet. It was fun. Yeah. And I really appreciate the nuance because I'm familiar too with um, Albert Moeller's theological triage, which I think is three steps. So essential for salvation, essential for close fellowship, that'd be more denominational even would be wrapped in. And then, um, you know, unimportant, non-essentials, you know, things we can disagree yeah. on. Um, and, and I, I, and I also really, but I really appreciate this nuance because there really is a lot more, especially in that second tier of, of this for historic orthodoxy, traditional orthodoxy, um, denominational. And it, and it is really helpful to see that through. And I, I feel that fear too sometimes. And sometimes I want to build up my walls really high. I don't know if you ever feel like that, but I'm just, you know, I'm really comfortable for, for me. I'm really comfortable in the reform tradition. And sometimes I just want to build my walls up and, and I forget <laughs> the words of Jesus that, that just like he and the father are one, he, he wants me and my brothers and sisters to be one. <laughs> and, yeah. and those walls, you know, I, I, I want to hold, I want to hold my convictions, but I still want to be, I want to be charitable and I don't want to, I don't want to divide over over these un, uh, the unnecessary things um, that you know you mentioned you know the, the specifics on the end times what happens when and, and, and things like that and and so it's it's helpful I think it really builds builds in charity and we and we it gives us ways of discussing things too that isn't you know that isn't demeaning you know it's 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 because it seems like we're so binary sometimes like you know, some you know, it matters or it doesn't matter you know and, and, and rob the thing is i think your exact attitude the wrestling match is so important if you if you ever get over that wrestling match you're probably not doing it right mm. because it should you should be yeah. back and forth you know and, and that's the hard thing is to to you know to be a gracious person yet remain incredibly passionate for the truth. Right. Uh, yeah. you, usually what happens is you you separate the two, and you're either just incredibly gracious and anything goes, or you're right. so passionate for the truth, you separate from everybody. And I think that's part of the struggle of the Christian life is keeping those two in balance. And the thing is, we never give up our passion, but we never give up our grace. And how does that work out? Mm. It just works out as you, you know, as long as you have this and you're pushing forward with it, uh, and wrestling with it, I promise you it'll work out. One of the things I wanted to press in on a little bit, or just try to tease out, going back and thinking about that most center circle, the the essential for salvation. Uh, Rob and I both are attending churches that would uh, have certain creedal affirmations like built into the service. So, like Nicene Creed uh, comes to mind. And and so thinking about that center circle in terms of like core things that need to be believed or held to, one of the things that I've been trying to think through myself is, I guess to to to, to use a phrase of like like a theological quiz or something, which I know you did not use that language, but let, let's suppose we gave someone a theological quiz with all the essentials, right? And they passed it with flying colors, like they checked all the right boxes. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God and man. He, he died for my sins, all that. But then let's say that they did not pass the test, so to speak, at the final judgment, like in Matthew 25, because they did not feed the hungry. They did not give drink to the thirsty, welcome the stranger, clothe the naked. So in other words, what, what if someone has correct beliefs about Jesus, who he was, but those are not embodied and lived out? 
is there a place for putting moral and ethical requirements into that center circle? Is that question making sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. It makes a lot of sense. And, you know, um, I wish I wish I could give you a, a really a great answer on this and like, uh, you know, because I've, I've worked through it for a long time as well, Jason. But I think I think what you what you have to do is not don't think of it as putting putting moral requirements in the same graph, but maybe making a new graph uh, that has just kind of moral issues. And at the center is not what you have to do in order to be saved. Maybe you have a, a broader circle here that says what Christians of all time have always believed about uh, the uh, moral moral uh, uh, actions and what they have always done. I, I think it needs to be different because I do think that whenever you try to put something, if if you do this act or if you you practice this sin, then you're automatically not saved. In that other one that that has a particular purpose, uh, then I think we're going to really mess things up a bit, and everything's going to just go haywire and crazy. I don't think those things belong in here. And the reason why I say that is because here's what I believe: as long as you as long as you are taking those things and you really believe those things that we're talking about, the person and work of Christ. And you're really growing in these things. And what I mean by I really believe is that you're you're trusting in them. You're not just having an intellectual assent to them. Mm. It's not just something you know and you you really, really believe it's true because you know you've worked it all out and there's no way it can't be true. It's that you realize the implications of it and what it requires of you. And then you're resting in Christ and you're you're you have you're beginning to follow Christ to the degree that your passion is pushing you. And hopefully the more involved you are in this, the more you're going to be passionate. But I don't know how the Holy Spirit's going to push you. I really don't. And just because whenever I got saved or whenever I first started following the Lord, you know, I quit. Here's what I quit doing. I quit going out with all my friends and drinking all the time. I quit sleeping around with girls. I, I, you know, and I can name all these different things. And then I could look out there and here we go the same way. Well, you didn't quit all these things whenever you start up following the Lord. So I don't think you really start mm. following the Lord. We're really messing up there because we're equating those things. This is part of what we've talked about, kind of a theme that's gone through tonight, that we we expect others to do what we did or what happened to us. Um and I I don't I don't know that we can push that too hard. Um I know that generally speaking you do have a lot of things that people begin to do. You know, maybe they begin Somebody, somebody comes to me and says, you know, I believe all those things. I really trusted them, but I have never prayed before in my life. I would go, that's, that's odd. You know, I mean, uh, you've, you've never talked to God. Well, you know, then at that point you would have this kind of this moral thing that you do see universal, but again, I don't really know what's going on in the guy's heart. And so to kind of oust him out of the center, oust him out of being saved, he's really not saved is, is not my place. And so I do think the Holy Spirit moves us in his own direction at his own speed. I mean, take take Peter, for instance. Peter, after receiving the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, after, I mean, and nobody would argue that he he is a believer. I mean, we all believe, we all know he's a believer. We know the Holy Spirit is indwelling him. Therefore, what changes occur with him? Well, he becomes more bold. He starts mm-hmm. proclaiming the gospel immediately, mm-hmm. but at the same time, you have him all the way until Acts chapter 10, whenever he meets with Cornelius, and this is 10 years later, you have his meeting with Cornelius, and he will not go in. He says, you yourself know how unlawful it is for me to enter this house. That is not true. 
that was a Jewish custom. He's talking about not Mosaic law, but law that he was still following because he was still on this sinful habit of, of pridefulness, which is a terrible sin. He had this pride that he could not go in somebody's house because his group of people were better than them. But it took till the Holy Spirit 10 years to even begin to deal with them on that. And as we find in Galatians, whenever Paul talks about having to confront Peter, he's still dealing with it later on. And so you've got, it's really hard to put these moral things uh, in the same type of grid, saved, yeah. not saved, orthodox, not orthodox, that kind of stuff. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. Thanks for that explanation. And would you be comfortable saying, you know, the orthopraxy or, or living this out is to some degree a litmus test for that true belief? Because, you know, knowing that we're going to see those dips like we see in Peter, we're going to see the pride come up. We're going to see, you know, we don't want to judge think, him by I, his worst day, but we do see fruit too. You know, we do see, you know, that it, you, you may agree with me on this, Rob. Um, I'm much more comfortable in my own mind, whenever I'm thinking, whenever I meet somebody and whenever I get to know them, I'm much more comfortable saying, I know that person's saved because mm -hmm. of this. You know, I can tell much better when somebody is saved than I can tell when somebody's not saved. That's kind of the way I approach this stuff. And so, mm -hmm. yes, it is in the sense of evidencing someone's Christian belief, but it's harder when we're talking about evidencing the absence of a Christian belief. That's right. And I guess for the person self-examining, are they, are they looking to Christ? Are they, are, are they looking for their, their, you know, performance to be just right to, 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 you know, to do it? Or are they looking to him knowing that, no, my performance was terrible. <laughs> my merit, I need your merit because I, I know what I do. You know, I think even that would have to show you, this is a fruit of, of repentance. This is, it is, this is God is at work. <laughs> Just like we talked about beforehand, you know, about the state of truth and personalities. Here we have somebody that is very expressive and he's, he's always talking, he's always repenting to you, man, I just let God down. And you know, the, this, mm. this idea of repentance, the thing that goes on in our inner minds, sometimes some people just, they're always letting out and telling you about how much they have failed and how much they rely upon God's grace. But that's a personality thing. Maybe the next person, it's all going on in there or something similar, or maybe you know, something very small, but, uh, you know, effectively the Holy Spirit is still happening. So it, it's yeah. just hard. It is, like I said, much easier for me to tell when somebody is saved than when they're not. Thank you so much, Michael. Well, as, as we wrap up, I just want to thank you so much for your time. Thanks for chatting with us. And I'd like to, if I can give you the final word, thinking about our listeners who might be struggling through their place in church or denomination, you know, and, and, and growing in these kinds of charitable, but productive conversations you know what might you say I, I guess to that to that person you know I, it, it's hard because well at least at least they're listening here and they're listening to you guys so that's what i would say i'd say look listen to these guys i mean they're very sensitive and then they're trying to speak to you and they will work through this kind of stuff with you and work to uh, being at your level and and talk to you if this i mean if you're listening to this and this has grabbed your heart then it's there. We're, we're excited. We, we've got you because you're going to come back next time and you're going to keep on this pursuit because you, you realize that there's a, a, an excitement to knowing and there's, there's an excitement to thinking through these things. And there, it's a journey, but it's an exciting journey. Then we, we've already got you. If we haven't got you, if this is just kind of, you know, oh man, this has been boring and, you know, let's move to something else or I was assigned to listen to this or whatever it may be. Um, I'm, 
uh, there's nothing I can say that'll really change that. It's got to come to a point in your life, just like it was with Chet. I don't know why I didn't listen beforehand, but all of a sudden mm -hmm. it made sense. And I was excited. So I, I'm glad you guys are doing what you're doing because you're presenting an option for them. Well, thank you so much. And how, and then, well, in terms of you, how, how can people find out more about you and your work and what you're doing? Well, right now, the best thing to do is to, uh, I'll be on YouTube and go to Credo House. I'm just now really, we've had the Credo House channel for, I don't know, 10 or 15 years, but we have done nothing with it for so long. And I'm just now starting to post all the time on it. And I'm really excited about it. Uh, we're, you'll, you'll see um, uh, lo lots of our teaching, everything that we do, including the theology program, is going to be fully up there pretty soon. So go to search for Credo House on YouTube. And uh, that's the best way to find me and keep up. Great. We will definitely put links to that um, in the show notes. And if we haven't said it enough, I know Rob and I just could not recommend the theology program enough and, and the benefit uh, that it is. And um, Michael, we could keep talking with you for hours, but unfortunately, uh, time's going to force us to to wrap up this conversation. So thank you for this extremely beneficial conversation. We're so grateful for your time. And for coming on and I've, I've learned a lot uh and it's definitely given me a lot to think about so for our listeners if, if you're not already please make sure that you are signed up to receive an email when our latest podcast episodes drop just visit stainedglasstheology.com to sign up and if you're enjoying the podcast it would really help us if you could give a rating and review and feel free to pass it along to a friend and we do want to hear from you if you are struggling through an issue that divides the church, maybe maybe your own church that you're a part of, and you'd like to hear a friendly conversation about it, again, in an ironic tone, not seeking to score points or shoot arrows, uh, just a conversation to help point you to Christ, you can email us at stainedglasstheology at gmail.com. And stay tuned for further episodes and join us on this journey of having friendly conversations about the issues that divide the church with Stained Glass Theology. 